This morning, I was lying in bed, not wanting to get up. You know the feeling? Not because I dreaded anything about the day, it's just sometimes you enjoy lying there in the bed. And as I was lying there, I heard my phone on the nightstand vibrate. Now, I'm in a unique position from anyone else in this room in that if I hear my phone vibrate very early on a Sunday morning, I know what it's likely to be about. It's probably going to be a pastor who is sick and needs somebody to preach for him. And sure enough, when I picked up my phone and looked at it, the text was from one of our pastors and it said, I, ha- I got up this morning, I have a fever, I was exposed twice this week, I think I know where this is going, and I was wondering if you could preach for me. And of course, I was previously committed, but he understood symptoms and understood what those symptoms probably indicated. Back in the early days of COVID, we discovered that you did not have to have symptoms to have COVID. And there was a big debate over whether or not the person who had COVID but did not have symptoms could be contagious or not. And there's a humorist on Twitter who goes by the name Church Curmudgeon. And I saw a tweet that he sent out in those early days of COVID. And on that tweet, he said, turns out that asymptomatic Christianity doesn't spread either. (laughs) I love that tweet. And I kept it because I thought I might use it someday. And that's what I want us to think about this morning is symptomatic Christianity. Not asymptomatic Christianity, but symptomatic. If a person wears the name of Christ, what are some of the symptoms that are going to not only let them know they've got something, but to let everybody else know they've got something. This morning we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of Philippians chapter 4 as we think about symptomatic Christianity. Now there are places in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, where Scripture gives us nice, compact little lists to describe what a Christian is supposed to look like and act like. And so three examples of that, one of which is the, the most familiar in Galatians chapter 5, the, what we call the fruit of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But there are other places where we see other lists Uh, places such as Colossians chapter 3, 
2 Peter chapter 1, where we also see characteristics that describe what a Christian looks like, acts like, how you know you are one or you know someone else is one. In Philippians chapter 4, the first seven verses, we have a number of different characteristics similar to these kind of lists, but they're given to us in the form of a teaching and exhortation to the church in Philippi. They're not given to us as a list. So I want us to look through this passage and see what Paul has to say about some of these symptoms of being a Christian. So I'm going to read first of all these first seven verses. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel by my side along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So as we look for the characteristics or the symptoms, as it were, of Christianity and of being a Christian, we start in verse 1 with the first symptom being love. And that doesn't surprise us because throughout Scripture, particularly the New Testament, we are told repeatedly that the highest calling upon Christians is to love one another. And so Paul says in verse 1, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Paul starts out this uh, segment of teaching referring to his love for the church at Philippi. This was a church that Paul founded. He knew these people personally. And even though he didn't get to spend much time with them, they were near and dear to his heart. And he refers to them as dearly loved. Jesus had said to his apostles in John 13, 35, by this everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus himself said the number one symptom of being a Christian is your love for one another. And so that is a call upon us in our churches today and in this church to care, to love, to serve, and to bear one another's burdens as we walk the Christian path together as believers. Paul said in Colossians 3.14, Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In that passage, Paul is talking about dressing ourselves with the symptoms, with the characteristics of Christianity. 
And Paul says the most important piece of clothing you can have is love. You're undressed without it. So make sure you are wearing love at all times. Secondly, in verse second, uh, 2 and 3, Paul addresses the issue of unity. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, we don't know who Yodia and Syntyche are. And Paul not only doesn't tell us anything about them, but he doesn't tell us what their conflict is. But these two women in the Philippian church are in some kind of a jihad together, some kind of a conflict. They don't see eye to eye. And we live in a day where our world is filled with conflict. And that conflict has come into our churches. I'm not saying specifically this one, but churches as a whole, left and right. I hear tales all the time about conflict in churches that reflect not biblical principles, but reflect the conflict that is in our world at large outside these doors. And people are bringing those conflicts into the church. And it is hurting the fellowship and undermining the witness of our churches. And so Jesus in John 17 spoke about the importance of our unity and of us being one just as he and the Father are one. And so, if you look back in Philippians chapter 2, Paul had addressed this issue in more detail. In starting in verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for their own interest, but also for the interest of others. So we can take those three verses and use them as a checklist for our own hearts and our own actions and our own attitudes, both personally and within our church. Are we thinking the same way? Do we have a mutual love for one another? Are we united in the Spirit and through the Spirit? Are we intent on one purpose? Andy, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's that one purpose at First Baptist Church? Do what? Yes. Say it loud. I'm giving you the spotlight here. Everybody say that together. We exist to make disciples who make disciples from here to the ends of the earth. 
right? That's what First Baptist Tullahoma has cast as their purpose, as your purpose. Why you are here, why you exist. That should be a rallying point of unity together. When one person says, I think we should be doing this, and another one says, I think we should be doing that, and someone else says, no, 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 here's what we really ought to be doing, everyone must come back to the one central focus and purpose. Are these different things going to help us meet the calling that we believe God has called us to as a body to make disciples who make disciples from here to the ends of the earth. If these other things, which may be fine and well unto themselves, do not help us as a church to achieve the purpose to which God has called us, then we probably shouldn't be doing them. God has called us to a purpose and he's called us to unity in that purpose. And so Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Far too often through the sinful fallen nature that is still within us, even as Christians, we get wrapped up and focused on our own intent, our own agendas, our own opinions, our own desires. And that leads to conflict in the church that undermines our ability to achieve our purpose and we lose our witness in the world. Paul says, not looking to one's own interests, but rather to the interests of others. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about us together as God's people following his call on our lives individually and as a body of believers. And that is what we must be united around. Third, in verse four, Paul speaks to joy as a symptom of the Christian life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Uh, I love a story from a favorite preacher of mine who says he had a deacon in his church that he went up to once and he asked the fella, he said, uh, do you have the joy of the Lord? And the, and the fella says, yes. And the pastor says, well, tell your face. <laughs> and... <laughs> Far too often, we let the things of this world steal our joy. We let strife and worry and conflict and burdens and difficulties steal our joy. Now, Joy could be a whole sermon unto itself. And I know that you have a lunch date across the street. But let me reinforce this one point to you. Joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness comes from the word happenstance. 
Happiness is based on your circumstances. If Auburn loses, Andy's in a grumpy mood. But that doesn't steal his joy in the Lord, I hope. No. Our joy is founded in our relationship with Christ. And that does not change. And it can only be taken from us if we let it. If we give it away to the cares and concerns of this world. And Paul says that we're to rejoice in the Lord all the time, in all circumstances, regardless of what is going on around us. My wife Linda has a difficult person in her life and she says to me all the time, she says, I'm not going to let them steal my joy. I'm not going to let them steal my joy. We're called to base our joy in the Lord and the Lord and our relationship to him does not change. If you look in Acts chapter 16, when Paul first came to the city of Philippi, he and his sidekick Silas got into a little kerfluffle with the law and they wound up being thrown in jail. And Acts 16 says the crowd attacked them They stripped off their clothes. They ordered them to be beaten with rods. They severely flogged them. They threw them in jail. They put them in the inner prison. They put their feet in stocks. They were were in the inner prison in a cold, dark, probably rat and roach infested cell. And despite that, Despite that, we're told about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Even in the most difficult and trying of situations, they were not going to let anything or anyone steal their joy, because they knew the source of their joy which was in Christ. And when others in that jail, both the the jailer and the other prisoners, witnessed the joy of Paul and Silas in the midst of trial, others wanted in on what Paul and Silas had. And they had a big baptism service that night as a result of the joy that Paul and Silas demonstrated. Verse 5 talks about graciousness. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. What does that mean, graciousness? Well, that word can be translated as gentleness as moderation, as being considerate. Basically, it's being forbearing and giving and kind 
to others. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and humble in heart. And he used the same word there about himself, that he was gentle. Jesus was always looking out for the interest of others. He was always taking time. He was always giving of himself. He was always ready to listen. He was always thinking of the other person in his graciousness. And so when Paul says, let your graciousness be known to everyone, are you known as a person who is gracious or as a person who is grinding? Are you known as a person who is a little bit rough around the edges? A person who is opinionated and going to let everybody know about it? Are you a person that others try to avoid or others want to be around? Paul says, be the latter. Be someone who is winsome. Be someone that people are drawn to. Be someone that people want to spend time with. Be someone that people want to listen to. Be someone whose nature, whose character, whose personality draws people to themselves, not for their own glory, but so that they can show others the way to Christ. And then in verses 6 and 7, Paul says one of the most important symptoms of Christianity is peace. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We live in a time that it can be a challenge to go to sleep at night. It can be a challenge to not lean on that bottle of Pepto-Bismol to calm your stomach. It can be a challenge to not be constantly rehearsing in your mind issues and conflicts and worries and questions that you have. Now... 14 months ago, I stood in this pulpit, and in the context of my sermon, I made reference to retiring. And it was just a reference to it's within sight down the road. But what I said, and it was my fault the way I said it, but what I said was misunderstood as I was retiring right then. And so for months and months, I had people say to me, how's retirement going? <laughs> I wasn't retiring, but guess what? I have announced my retirement. I am officially on record as here's the date. And I'm really, really wondering, Monty, if I have made a mistake. I mean, the investments have gone off the cliff. 
my bank accounts are in the toilet. And I'm wondering how in the world am I going to afford to retire? Every one of us has things in life that make us tend to worry. But Paul says, don't worry. God's got this. And when I start thinking about the value of my investments right now, that's what I have to constantly remind myself of. God's got this. He has a purpose. He has a plan. I have to leave it up to him. I have to trust him. Now that doesn't mean that we don't use wisdom in the choices we make and the decisions we make. But when we lay our head on the pillow at the end of the day, we remind ourselves, God's got this. I'm giving it to him. I'm entrusting it to him. After all, he's the sovereign Lord of the universe. Who better to give it to? Because I don't have a clue. If it's up to me, I'm in a whole lot of trouble. And Paul says, don't worry about anything. But in everything, trust it to the Lord. Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount has an extended teaching about worry. And I'm not going to read the whole long passage, but in that passage, he says that God provides for birds and flowers. He will surely provide for you. Are you not worth more to him than birds and flowers? Jesus says twice in this passage that worrying is pointless. I've heard it said that worrying is borrowing tomorrow's trouble for today. Jesus says that worry isn't a Christian practice. To stop freaking out like someone who doesn't know God. When we worry... It is an act of unbelief that God is in control. Verse 32, Jesus says, God knows our needs more than we do. And in verse 33, he says to seek God and he will take care of everything. When we do those things, we can have the peace that passes all understanding. And so Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And one of the well-known verses from Isaiah 26.3, where Isaiah says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. 
you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you. That's the key. Setting our mind on the Lord, setting our heart on the Lord, trusting all things, all circumstances to him. And he has promised us his peace. So the pastor who called, who texted me this morning saw symptoms and understood what was probably on its way in his next few days. Paul has given us several symptoms here of what it means to be a Christian, what it looks like to be a Christian. And the question not only is, do we see these things in ourselves, but do others see these things in us? Does our life bear testimony and witness to the presence and the work of God and God's Holy Spirit in us and through us? So, does your life display the symptoms of Christianity, love, unity, joy, gentleness, peace. If it does not, and you bear the name Christian, then perhaps today is the day that you commit fresh and new to seek the Lord's filling in your life of His Holy Spirit to equip you, to enable you, to transform you from the inside out that these symptoms might be evident in your life. And if you have never professed Jesus Christ as your Savior, perhaps today is the day. No, not perhaps. Strike that word from the sentence. Today is the day that he is calling you to follow him and he will do a work in your life that will leave you totally amazed and everyone who knows you totally amazed. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in my life these symptoms would be real and present each and every day. And I pray that for everyone here this morning who bears your name. That we would live lives constantly, continuously, completely and thoroughly symptomized by love and unity and graciousness and peace and joy. 
Lord, if that does not describe anyone here, speak to their heart in this moment to draw them unto yourself and convict them of their need to walk closer with you so that you may do the work you desire in their life. We commit these things to you. We thank you for your promise to fulfill them. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.